0: Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and uh, reading verses 67 to 69. John 6 from verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know That you are the Holy One of God. In his book, True Discipleship, William MacDonald writes True Christianity is an all out commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior is not looking for men and women who will give their spare evenings to Him, or their weekends, or their years of retirement. Rather, He seeks those who will give Him first place in their lives. He looks today as he has ever looked, not for crowds drifting aimlessly in his track, but for individual men and women whose undying allegiance will spring from their having recognized that he wants those who are prepared to follow the path of self renunciation that he trod before them. Nothing less than unconditional surrender could ever be a fitting response to his sacrifice at Calvary. Love so amazing, so divine. Could never be satisfied with less than our souls, our lives, our all. There are many criticisms that could be leveled at the Apostle Peter, many of them justified, but one thing that cannot be denied is the fact that Peter was committed to Jesus. He was committed to Jesus. This morning we're continuing our studies in the life of Peter and we're looking at these verses under two headings. The scandalised crowd and then the stunning conviction. The scandalised crowd and then the stunning conviction. First we have the scandalised crowd. Look at verses 60 to 66. Here John focuses on the crowd's response to Jesus. In verse 60 John speaks about the disgruntlement. We can begin by noting the context in verses 1 to 59. Jesus has just fed a crowd of over 5,000 men. This large crowd have decided to make Jesus king, and they will do so by force if necessary. Jesus has responded by making his disciples get into a boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he remains behind to pray. That night, a storm hits the boat while the disciples are in it, and Jesus comes to them in the middle of the night, walking on the water, saying, It is I, don't be afraid. Upon reaching the other side of the lake, Jesus finds that the crowd have followed him for material reasons rather than spiritual reasons. They are wanting bread. And so Jesus proceeds to teach them from the Capernaum synagogue, and in the course of his teaching, he says some controversial and provocative things. He tells them that he is the bread of life. And that all who come to him will never hunger, and all who believe in him will never thirst. He is speaking about a spiritual hunger and a spiritual satisfaction. He carries on and tells him that the Father has given him a people, and that whoever comes to him will never be turned away, never cast away by him. He goes on and tells him that he is the bread who has come down from heaven, and that he will raise up everyone who believes in him on the last day. He tells them that he alone has seen the Father, and not only has he seen the Father, not only has he seen God, but he has also been sent by God. He closes by telling them that unless a person eats his flesh and drinks his blood, they will die. But if a person eats his flesh and drinks his blood, they will live. He is talking about a radical commitment to him, a wholehearted belief in him. A union with him where he will enter into the lives of his people in the same way that food and drink enters into the body of a person. And with that context before us, we can hear the complaint in verse sixty. John draws our attention to the disciples. Now, this refers to more than Jesus and her circle of followers. This refers to the crowds in general who have loosely attached and affiliated themselves to Jesus. And they begin by talking among themselves. This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Now, it's important to note that they don't find the words of Jesus hard to understand but they do find the words of Jesus hard to accept. They're grumbling, talking among themselves about what Jesus is saying. John moves from the crowd's disgruntlement to Jesus' discourse in verses 61 to 65. Jesus begins by addressing the scandal of the crowd in verse 61. John tells us that Jesus knew in himself that they were grumbling, that they were murmuring among themselves about what he had been saying. And he now asks them, do you take offense at this? Are you stumbling over this? Are you scandalized by this? Jesus carries on by speaking about the Son of Man. Verse 62, the crowds are taking offence at what Jesus is saying. They're offended by his claim that he has seen God and that he has been sent by God. They're offended by his command that a person must eat his flesh and drink his blood. The command that a person must commit themselves, mind, heart, soul to him. And now he asks them, how are you going to react If you see me, if you see the Son of Man ascending to where I was before, ascending to the throne of heaven. He goes further and speaks about the spirit of life. Look at verse 63. He tells the crowd that the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. In the Old Testament, it is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God that gives life, creates life, generates life. And Jesus emphasises this as he says only the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. But he goes further as he tells the crowd that the words that he speaks are spirit and life. He's the one on whom the spirit has descended. Chapter 1 verses 32 and 33. He's the one whom God has given the spirit without measure to. And who speaks of any words of God. Chapter 3 verse 34. And now he says that the words that he speaks are... Our spirit, and because the words that he speaks are spirit, they are words that create life. They are words that generate life. They are words that give life. He closes by speaking about the sovereignty of God, verses 64 and 65. Jesus tells the crowd that he is aware that some of them don't believe. Some of them are holding back. Some of them are refusing to commit themselves to him. And John notes here that Jesus knew from the beginning who did not believe and who would betray him. That phrase from the beginning can refer to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It can even mean though the beginning of time itself, the beginning of creation. Either way, Jesus has a sovereign knowledge. He has a knowledge of those who will not believe. He has a knowledge of those who will betray And Jesus then says to the crowd, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Unless the Father sovereignly grants it, a person will remain apart from Jesus. Unless the Father sovereignly grants it, a person will remain in an unbelieving condition. Unless the Father sovereignly grants it, a person will never commit themselves to Jesus. If you are a Christian today, if you have come to Jesus, it is only because the Father has granted it. We move from Jesus' discourse, though, to the crowd's departure. Verse 66 John tells us that many of the crowd turn back, they go back to the things that they had left behind. They go back to their old lives and their old lifestyles. But they do more than this. John also tells us that they didn't simply turn back. He also tells us that they no longer walked with Jesus. They stop following Jesus. They allow an ever-increasing distance to come between them and Jesus. It is as if Jesus is going that way and the crowds are going that way. They are going in two opposite directions. The crowds turning back. No longer walking with Jesus. In short, the crowds renounce their discipleship and they depart from Jesus. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we are being reminded that many people turn back from following Jesus. Many people turn back from following Jesus. That's what we see in John chapter 6. It's a remarkable decline of a church. The chapter opens with over 5,000 people following Jesus and they're wanting to make him king. And the chapter closes with many of them turning back and no longer walking with him. Jesus is left at the end of John 6 with 12 followers, one of whom will betray him. And the same is true today. I look back at the congregation I grew up in. And I think of office bearers who taught in the Sunday school, who led in the praise, who took the prayer meeting. And they haven't darkened the doors of a church for over 25 years. They have no more interest in Jesus, no more interest in his cause. I think of friends whom I studied with, who have walked away from the faith they once professed. One friend in particular stands out. We, we studied together. We lived together. We served on the Christian Union Committee together. He, he once said to me, Hugh, the girl whom I marry must love the Lord more than she loves me. And a few years ago, he wrote me the following letter. I'm not much of a church goer or even a prayerful man these days, except under extreme stress. I am after the fashion of my elder brother, a sports gambler, betting on cricket matches and profiting on the online exchanges, but it was not always thus, and I hope not to be one forever. I briefly attempted to become a pastor, returning home after fourth year to my childhood town, and undertaking a church internship where it became obvious to me very quickly that I had neither the heart nor the patience, nor indeed the thriftiness, to shepherd a flock of broken humans. I then created a sports education programme for nursery school children, which after a strong start fell flat on its face when I moved into an aggressive expansion mode into London and found myself short of employees back home. Meanwhile, I was accepted at Sandhurst but chickened out at the 11th hour. And all along, the betting kept me afloat. And I turned to it in earnest in 2012, and I've remained here ever since. Or even I look back at my 10 years of free church ministry and I think of men and women whom I shared the Lord's Supper with, some whom I even welcomed into membership in congregations, now drifting from the Lord, detached from the Lord. Many people can turn back from following Jesus. So this morning I just want to ask you a question and it's a question that I have to ask myself. Are you walking with Jesus? Come on friends. Are you walking with Jesus? Are you walking with the one who came down from heaven to be the bread of life and who has promised to raise all his people on the last day, are you, are you walking with Jesus? Or are you wandering further and further from him? Many people can turn back from following Jesus. But we move from the scandalised crowd to the stunning conviction. Look at verses 67 to 71 where John focuses now on Peter's response to Jesus. In verse 67 we hear the question that Jesus asks. Having seen the departure of many of his disciples, Jesus now addresses the twelve beginning of verse 67. That is the first time that the twelve are mentioned in the Gospel of John. Is a reference to the small band of men whom Jesus has chosen and called to be with him. And as he addresses the twelve, Jesus asks them a question. Look again at verse 67. Do you want to go away as well? There has been this mass defection, this huge falling away from Jesus. It's not just a couple of men and women walking away from Jesus. It's not even a few hundred men and women walking away from Jesus, Thousands of men and women have been walking away from him, they have turned their backs on him, they have stopped walking with him for the simple reason that they cannot stomach what he has been saying, what he has been proclaiming, what he has been preaching, and as the crowds are disappearing into the distance, you can no longer see them for smoke, Jesus asks the twelve a question, do you want to go away as well? He is challenging them concerning their commitment. Are they willing to stay with him or will they go with the crowd? And in verses 68 and 69, we hear the answer that Jesus receives. John tells us that Simon Peter answered him, beginning of verse 68, we had a girl in our class at school and she would always be putting up her hand to answer a question. And whenever she wasn't putting up her hand to answer a question, she was putting up her hand to ask a question. Anytime you saw her hand go up, I can't even remember the tone of her voice. I can't remember the tone of many people's voices, but I remember the tone of her voice. And you would just roll your eyes and you think, here we we'll go again. And that is Peter. He is the most impulsive of the twelve. He is the least shy of the twelve. He's the one who is always wanting to blur out the answer. Put up his hand even if he puts his foot in it. And upon hearing Jesus' question, do you want to go as well? He now feels the need to provide an answer regardless of what the others in the group are thinking or saying. John carries on and he tells us what Peter said. Look at verses 68 and 69. He begins by addressing Jesus as Lord. It could be a polite form of address, meaning master or sir. But Peter has already seen Jesus feeding 5,000 people. He has seen Jesus walking on water. He has heard all that Jesus said about being the bread of life who came down from heaven. And that all who believe in him will live forever. And now he addresses Jesus as Lord. It is a title of deity, a title of divinity. He goes on and asks... To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is nowhere else that Peter can go. No one else whom Peter can go to. He sees Jesus and Jesus alone as the one whose words are the words of eternal life. There is no going back. With Peter, no drifting with Peter, no defecting with Peter, no departing with Peter. He is going to remain with Jesus come what may. He is going to remain with Jesus to the bitter end. He closes by saying, We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He is putting Jesus in the highest possible category that he has. He sees Jesus as the Holy One, the one sent by God. The one who has been set apart for God. He sees Jesus as greater than any other prophet, any other priest, any other king. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And in verses 70 and 71 we hear the response that Jesus gives. Having heard Peter's great statement of faith... Jesus highlights that he chose Peter and all those who are with him. Beginning of verse 70, throughout the Old Testament, God's people are described as being a chosen people. A people whom God has selected and elected for himself. And now Jesus reminds Peter and those with him that he has chosen them. The very fact that Peter has given this great statement of faith is proof. That Jesus chose them, selected them, called them. They didn't come to this themselves. But Jesus isn't finished. As he closes by cautioning the twelve. Look at verses 70 and 71. He tells this very small group, this inner circle, that one of them is a devil. One of them is a slanderer, one of them is an accuser, one of their number is a servant of Satan, the great adversary of God. Even among this very small group whom Jesus has chosen and called to be with him is someone whose allegiances lie elsewhere. And John goes on to fill in the details about who Jesus was speaking about. He tells us that Jesus was speaking about a man named Judas... He tells us that this man Judas was the son of Simon Iscariot. He tells us that this man Judas was one of the twelve. And he tells us that this man Judas would betray Jesus. He would hand him over to him, to his enemies, for harm. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, I want us to hear Peter's word of conviction. Peter's word of conviction. This is very much the, the high point in Peter's life up to now. He has seen the fault lines emerging between Christ and the crowds. And he's faced with a choice: will he go with the crowd or will he go with Christ? And he now hears Jesus' question: will you go away as well? He hears Jesus saying to him and his friends: are you going to go with the crowd or are you going to stick with me? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else can we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. John Calvin writes, Peter realises that as soon as they have gone away from Christ, nothing remains for them but death, wherever they go. And that is such an important lesson for ourselves. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. All other roads, all other routes lead to death. Politicians such as Liz Truss might announce a, a, an economic policy that might promise great economic prosperity. We, we wish that she would. But only Jesus has the words of eternal life. A musician such as Ed Sheeran might compose a song that Captures your feature, uh, your feelings, captures your emotions, and you think that is the best song I have heard this year. In fact, that is the best song I have heard this decade. But only Jesus has the words of eternal life. An actor such as Daniel Craig might deliver the performance of a lifetime. You see him in the James Bond film, and you think to yourself, "My life will never be the same again." But only Jesus has the words of eternal life. A psychologist such as Jordan Peterson might be able to give an insightful assessment on the human condition. And you think to yourself, he gets it. He gets what makes a person tick. But only Jesus. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. And a Christian is someone who is left saying, Lord, where can I go? Who can I go to? You have the words of eternal life. That is their conviction. But as we consider these verses, I also want us to think about Jesus' word of caution. He speaks about this man Judas. Judas hasn't gone with the crowd. Judas has stayed with Jesus and the twelve. Judas has nodded in agreement. He has given his hearty amen brother to all that Peter has just said. And at the same time, he is the one who betrayed Jesus. He is the one whom Jesus called a devil. And that is such an important lesson for ourselves. J.C. Ryle writes, If ever there was a man who had great privileges and opportunities, that man was Judas Iscariot, a chosen disciple. A constant companion of Christ, a witness of his miracles, a hearer of his sermons, a commissioned preacher of his kingdom, a fellow and friend of Peter, James and John, it would be impossible to imagine a more favourable position for a man's soul. Yet if anyone ever fell hopelessly into hell and made shipwreck at last for eternity, that man was Judas Iscariot. The character of that man must have been black indeed, of whom our Lord could say, he is a devil. What a solemn warning Judas is. The story of Judas teaches us that a person can have so much exposure to Jesus, so many opportunities to to come to Jesus. And at the end of the day they they can waste it all. They they piggyback off the faith of others. The faith of their spouse, the faith of their parents, the faith of their friends, the faith of their congregation, just like Judas piggybacked of the faith of Peter. But it's not personal to them. It's not real to them. And this passage serves as a caution. It serves as a warning to such people Friend, this passage is saying to you today don't waste your gospel privileges. Don't waste your gospel opportunities. Don't try piggybacking off the faith of others. So today, Jesus confronts each of us with a question. And the question Jesus confronts us with is the question, do you want to go away as well? That's a very challenging question. But you know, it's not a question where Jesus is trying to push you away. This isn't Jesus almost opening the door and saying, do you want to go away as well? No, friends, this is Jesus trying to pull you in. And so as we close, I want to ask... How are you? How am I? How are we? Responding to that question. Are we able to say with Peter, Lord, Lord, to whom can I go? Where can I go? You have the words of eternal life. If Jesus was to open the door today and say, Do you want to go away as well? Would you be able to say to him, would you be willing to say to him, would you only be able to cry out to him, Lord, Lord, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. Liz Trust doesn't have any hope for me. Ed Sheeran doesn't have any hope for me. Daniel Craig doesn't have any hope for me. Jordan Peterson doesn't have any hope for me. You alone, Lord, have the words of eternal life. Where else? And I go. That was the place that Peter came to understand and realise and rest on. And I hope, friends, each and every one of us would do the same. Let's pray.